Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So like everyone else, I'm interested in what makes humans unique, but in particular, I'm focused on what makes our brains unique. Now, as has been mentioned several times today, the human brain is much larger than the chimpanzee brain. So this is a human brain superimposed next to a chimpanzee brain. And this doesn't really give us much insight into what's driving the huge differences in behavior between us and chimpanzees. But there are some possibilities that come to mind, and many of which have been discussed, a few of which I'll reiterate. Uh, one is anatomical changes. So perhaps um, at the microscopic level, there are things going on that we can only see by uh, looking with particular stains or looking at measurements of activity in the brain. Changes in DNA, we've talked about that a lot in this symposium. Regulation of genes, you've just heard several uh, talks about that, and that's something that I'm interested in and how that's outputted into expression, gene expression. And finally, as has been alluded to several times, the human brain is uniquely vulnerable to many disorders. And we believe that by understanding what makes the human brain unique will provide insight into those disorders and vice versa. And so one of the challenges of trying to understand human brain gene expression is this idea of heterogeneity. And I'm just going to quickly go through that. Um, this was kind of talked about in the beginning. So the DNA in every cell in your body is essentially the same. So how do we get differences in our cells in terms of what their function is or in terms of the differences in our tissues? Well, that stems from which mRNAs are being expressed from the genes in a cell and then subsequently turned into proteins. And this is a bit of a, a simplified one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, expression pattern. However, when we're thinking about comparative gene expression, it gets even more complicated. So for example, just within one given species, if you're looking within two different brain regions, the mRNAs that are expressed may be different. And in addition, the same mRNA may be expressed, but at different levels. So this gets to a bit of the, the various types of complexities. So that's within one species, and then we're trying to compare between or among various species. And so we have another layer of uh, complexity there. And so you may say, since the proteins are kind of the end of the workflow, and these are the molecules that are really doing the work in the cell, why not study the proteins? Well, in terms of doing these large-scale comparative experiments, we don't really have the technology yet to be looking um, at all proteins simultaneously. However, we can look at all mRNAs simultaneously in a given tissue or cell. And several people have already mentioned the technologies that can be used uh, for doing so. And so everywhere throughout my talk where I'm mentioning gene expression, what I really mean is that we're measuring the levels and amounts of mRNAs in that given tissue or cell. And so many features have contributed to human evolution. So how can we use these technologies to look at these features? And which features should we look at? Well, I would argue that speech and language is arguably the most compelling and unique human feature. However, it may be one of the most complicated to actually try and study at a molecular level. So the question that my research attempts to address is, can we uncover the origins of human language at a genetic and molecular level? So how do we even start to try and attempt to answer that question? Well, there are two or perhaps more ways of, of getting at this answer, and I'm going to talk about both of them today. One is to use a candidate or single gene approach, if we had such a single gene, to try and understand these language pathways. 
And then the second would be to use a hypothesis-generating approach to uncover multiple potential pathways. So as I said, I'll mention, I'll talk about both of them, but I'm going to start with this candidate single-gene approach. And so with trying to use an analogy to Stanley Kubrick's uh, adaptation of 2001, in the movie, a black monolith appears, the apes touch it, and now all of a sudden they can use objects for tools or weapons. Well, perhaps there was a black monolith of a, a gene that enabled, enabled us to evolve language. Well, of course, nothing is that simple. It's always more complicated, but we can investigate the possibility that changes in a single gene could perhaps alter a complex human trait such as language. And our entry point into this single gene um, candidate approach came about when a large multi-generational family with an inherited speech deficit was investigated. And what was found was that in every individual in the family that had this speech and language deficit, as indicated here with the filled in circles and squares, all of these individuals had a mutation in the same gene. And this is the gene encoding for FOXP2. This is an image of FOXP2. This was already mentioned in a previous talk. And subsequently, a number of unrelated individuals were identified with mutations or truncations in FOXP2. And this kind of solidified FOXP2 as a potential so-called language gene. So what is so important about FOXP2, and what can it tell us about trying to understand the molecular pathways underlying speech and language? Well, first of all, FOXP2 is expressed in the brain at the right time and, at the, and in the right places. So its expression peaks during human fetal brain mid-gestation. So this is a critical time point in brain development when many connections are being made and when the circuitry for language and other cognitive processes are being laid. In addition, it's expressed in areas of the brain important for cognition. So in these uh, images of human fetal brain, the dark areas are showing where FOXP2 mRNA is expressed. And what we can see is that FOXP2 is expressed throughout the cerebral cortex, and this is an area important for cognition. Moreover, FOXP2 is also expressed in areas of the brain important for integrating motor functions, which is an obvious important part of speech and language. So, for example, throughout the striatum and cerebellum. In addition to where and when it's expressed, another important feature of FOXP2 came about when its uh, protein st structure was studied. So FOXP2's protein has been very well conserved throughout evolution, and as was mentioned previously, this typically indicates that it has an important function. However, when, the, when humans and chimpanzees split from a common ancestor, the human form of FOXP2 acquired two mutations resulting in two changes to the protein, so two different amino acids. And because it had been highly conserved up until that point, this suggested that it had perhaps undergone what is called accelerated evolution. And so we thought perhaps that human FOXP2 evolved alongside with the emergence of this human-specific trait, language. In addition, the function of FOXP2 is very important. It's a transcription factor. And as it's already been mentioned, transcription factors bind to DNA, and they regulate, turn on or off uh, genes into mRNA. And so this is obviously a very important part of a cell, which genes are being turned on and turned into proteins and, and doing the, uh, the functions of the cell. So based on these three aspects of FOXP2, when and where it's expressed, its accelerated evolution, 
and the fact that it's a transcription factor, we set out to ask several questions. First of all, what are the genes that FOXP2 regulates, since it's a transcription factor? More specifically, what are the genes regulated by the human form of FOXP2, since it had undergone accelerated evolution? And finally, which genes regulated by FOXP2 are important in neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism? As I, as I already mentioned, the human brain appears to be uniquely vulnerable to many of these disorders. So a number of years ago, we conducted the first study to identify targets of human FOXP2 using human fetal brain tissue. And we found a number of interesting findings, the first of which was that there appeared to be many target, an enrichment of many target genes associated with diseases such as schizophrenia and autism. Secondly, we also noticed that a number of target genes themselves had undergone a faster rate of evolution. So this suggested to us that perhaps FOXP2 and its target genes had co-evolved in order to build the molecular circuitry needed for language. So next we wanted to ask the question, does human FOXP2 have unique target genes? And so we attempted to address this experimentally in the following manner. We took neuronal cells and we put into those cells either the human form of FOXP2 or the chimpanzee form of FOXP2. We then applied the mRNA from these cells to a high-throughput chip that's already been mentioned, a microarray. So we could query, so this is one of these technologies where we can query all of the mRNAs being expressed simultaneously in these human or chimpanzee FOXP2 neurons. And what we found was that there were over 100 genes that were the expression of which was differentially regulated when the cells had either the human form of FOXP2 or the chimpanzee form of FOXP2. So this led us to conclude that indeed, yes, the human form of FOXP2 does have unique target genes and functions. So what was interesting about these genes? Well, one of the more striking findings to us was that a number of genes are target genes involved in motor and craniofacial development. And as already been mentioned, this is an, this is an important part of human evolution. And in fact, it's also very important for speech and language. And moreover, patients with mutations in FOXP2 have craniofacial deficits. So this made sense with the information we had about those individuals. In addition, when we looked at this list of genes and overlapped it with a list that we had from human and chimpanzee brain tissue, so genes differentially expressed in tissue, we found a significant overlap. So this was very encouraging to us because it suggested that differences that we were finding in cells growing in a dish were being recapitulated in tissue and solidified that these human-specific targets, FOXP2, really did have a unique pattern of expression in the tissue. Now, finally, to attempt to address which targets of FOXP2 are involved in neurodevelopmental disorders, we needed a, a human system that where we could model brain development. So to do this, we're using human fetal neuroprogenitors. They grow rapidly in a cell culture dish. However, when treated with the right cocktail of factors, they stop growing and, through a process of differentiation, turn into neurons. Now, these two images were taken at the same magnification. You can see that the cell bodies have now shrunken in size and are extending these long, fine processes, similar to what a neuron looks like. So we can use this model system to study human-specific signaling pathways. And what's also interesting to us is that during this process of differentiation, 
FOXP2 expression increases, and it increases at a time where we're seeing initiation of genes important for differentiation, giving us, again, more insight into FOXP2 function. And the other nice thing that we can do with this cellular system is we can modulate the levels of any gene of interest. So we can prevent expression of FOXP2 during this differentiation process, or we can increase expression of FOXP2 during the proliferation phase when it's normally not expressed, and then use these technologies to query which genes are changing and in which direction uh, on a large scale. And so we've done this. We've identified many target genes of human FOXP2, but I just wanted to give you an example of one of the genes that we've been, we followed up in more detail because of its link to neurodevelopmental disorders, and that is the gene encoding MET. And MET is interesting because it's a signaling molecule. It's a receptor tyrosine kinase, and there's, there's been work showing that it's involved in neuronal differentiation, may be important for uh, neuron, neuronal pathfinding, and most importantly, it's an autism candidate gene. And so what we found in our cellular system was that when FOXP2 levels were going up, MET levels were going down. And through a series of other experiments, we were able to show that FOXP2 actually directly binds to the promoter of MET to repress its expression, not only in cells, but also in tissue. And what is also nice is that we can see a correlation to this result in vivo in human fetal brain tissue. So we see an inverse pattern of expression of FOXP2 and MET. So if we just focus on the cerebral cortex, what we can see is that FOXP2 is expressed in the deeper layers of the cortex, whereas MET is expressed in more superficial layers. And again, also here, FOXP2 in deeper layers, MET in more superficial layers. So again, this makes sense in terms of FOXP2 repressing expression of MET, that they would be expressed in different layers of the cortex. And what's also very nice about this example is that it demonstrates the importance of FOXP2 regulating gene expression in an area of the brain important for cognition, the cerebral cortex. And it also highlights that FOXP2 does indeed directly regulate genes involved in neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism by showing that MET is a target gene. So to summarize the first part of my talk on FOXP2, FOXP2 is important because it's a transcription factor, regulates the expression of other genes. It's expressed in the brain at the right time in the right place for having an important role in setting up language circuitry. And it's undergone accelerated evolution, so it's likely to have played uh, a role in the evolution of this unique human trait. And this evolution has led to changes in gene expression, specifically in human brain, as demonstrated by our experiments. And these human-specific target genes are involved in CNS development, neurological disease, and as I pointed out, in craniofacial development. And finally, what we're really beginning to flesh out is that FOXP2 regulates many genes and pathways involved in neuropsychiatric neurodevelopmental disorders, such as autism and schizophrenia. And so moving on to touch briefly on how we could potentially use hypothesis-generating techniques to uncover a multitude of possible pathways involved in language. How can we do that? So the question is, can we again uncover human-specific language networks of gene expression using a large-scale approach? And this is just one attempt to try and look at the multiple layers of complexity in trying to understand networks of gene expression uh, underlying language. But again, it's always more complicated even than that. 
So how can we begin to do this? Well, we would like to look at the expression of all of the genes simultaneously again. And uh, in the past, we and others have used the technology that I've already mentioned, a microarray, to query that. But we'd like to move forward and use uh, the technology others have mentioned, next generation sequencing. And particularly for species comparison, so for comparative approaches, this has proven to be um, much better than the older technology, as you'll see in the next slide. So we started out uh, with a pilot project where we were looking at three areas of the brain, frontal pole, hippocampus, and caudate nucleus. And we're looking in three species, human, chimp, and macaque. And I'd just like to say that uh, this is all post-mortem brain tissue, and it's um, acquired from individuals that have died from natural causes, or in the case of the humans, not this human, uh, <laughs> usually from accidents and non-brain-related um, disorders. And so we applied this technology, and what we found was that there were many hundreds of genes that were differentially expressed along the human lineage. And so these genes are going up or down in human brain compared to chimp or human brain compared to rhesus macaque and are similar between chimpanzee and rhesus macaque, similar to the paradigms you've heard in the other talks. And the other thing that you can see here is that the next generation sequencing differentially expressed genes are plotted in purple. And we did a similar experiment using the older technology, the microarrays, and here's an example of how you can see how the new technology really is more sensitive and is giving us much more information, almost two to five times greater the number of genes using the next generation sequencing technology. But we're not interested just in genes going up or down in human brain. The nice thing is that we can use these data, not just from the sequencing, but also from the, from the microarrays, to look at other patterns of gene expression, what we call co-expression. So one way to think about this it's kind of like a social network where you're more highly connected to your friends and to people who have similar interests, uh, sim who like the same musical groups, the same restaurants, things like that. We can also extract that information from gene expression and determine which genes have similar likes, in this case, patterns in the various areas of the brains to other genes. And so it's really hard to see this, but the take-home message is that this is a network of uh, genes that are co-expressed specifically in human brain. So we can tease out which networks of co-expression are specific to each of the species. And I'd like to show uh, this example because this gene circled right here, thrombospondin 2, has been shown in, in, by others in detail to be having a specific pattern of expression in the human brain. So this network serves sort of as a proof of principle uh, experiment for demonstrating that we really can use a network approach to identify human-specific networks of co-expression. And just one more example. This one is a little bit easier to visualize, and sometimes people like to use the analogy of an, an airport or an airline map, and you can think of this like as O'Hare or JFK, and these genes are serving as the most connected or as hub genes in this network, and they're, they're, they receive a higher priority. And the reason I also like to show this particular network is this is a gene that we know nothing about. We, we have no idea what the function is, yet it appears to be the most highly connected gene in this particular network. In addition, this is a gene, GABR1, that's involved in epilepsy, so linked to a disease. 
And so we can use this sort of um, method of looking at gene co-expression to take from that list of hundreds or thousands, depending on your data set of genes differentially expressed, and say, which are the important ones to follow up? Which are the ones that I'm going to use now to make, for example, a humanized mouse, as we've heard in the, uh, the previous talks? So to conclude um, on the second half of the talk, next-generation sequencing can identify the expression of, hundred genes, of hundreds of genes changing specifically in the human brain. These network approaches of the data can uncover human-specific networks of gene co-expression. And we can use these networks to highlight both known and novel genes for the study of human brain evolution. But what does this have to do with language? Well, as I mentioned, this was a pilot project and where we had just chosen uh, three brain regions uh, to start with. But what we're doing now is looking in the cerebral cortex in areas in that we believe are important for language. In particular, we're looking for regions that are connected along this tract in the human brain, the arcuate fasciculus, uh, seen here in green, that appears to have a different um, morphology in the human brain compared to chimpanzee and macaque. So we think it may be important for the, um, the evolution of language. So we're looking specifically in these areas of the brain and doing similar gene expression and network analyses. And ultimately, what we'd like to do is tie together the data that we get from the human-specific networks with the data that we've uncovered from the FOXP2 human-specific networks to make sense of all of the language-related gene expression networks. So I'd just like to acknowledge that all of this work was done when I was a postdoc in Dan Geshwin's lab at UCLA, and he was the representative human uh, throughout the talk and other members of the lab that assisted we received the non-human primate tissue from Todd Preuss at Emory, and Pat Levitt collaborated with us on the MET project. And thank you for your attention. So thanks to, to the organizers for inviting me to come and, and talk today. This has been a great meeting so far. Um, I'm going to follow up a bit of what Katie's been talking about, but look at it from a somewhat different perspective, uh, specifically the evolution of human morphology. So this is a cave painting from Chauvet Cave in France. It's about 30,000 years old. It's an outline of a human hand. And it illustrates several things, I think, that resonate for what we're all interested in here, which is, first, that's a hand. Okay, we use this to make tools. Second, whoever made this had the cognitive ability to conceive of making this image in the first place. Okay. And third, he's making an image of, if it's a him, he's making an image of his own hand. So clearly our fascination with what makes us different from other species goes back a very long way. So this is the fundamental question, as we've been discussing, is what makes us human. I like to show this picture because I think it hits pretty much right on the nose what distinguishes humans from non-human apes. Uh, we managed to achieve something, in this case, that he has not been able to do. Okay, if we want, he wanted to go to the moon, he'd have to come with us. He's not getting there himself. <laughs> and what we're interested in is, un is really understanding what changes are important in a genome, and specifically, how do we find these? So we take the position in our lab that the way to think about this is to think about it from the perspective of embryonic development. So changes in the way that the hum humans actually develop 
are responsible for these sorts of high-level traits, tool use, cognition. Okay. So increases in brain size and complexity, changes in the morphology of the limbs, these enabled us to do these things. So to really understand how these sorts of changes evolved, we have to really study human embryonic development uh, as best we can. So this is a 54-day-old human embryo. Um, you can already see you've got the cortex developing, you've got hands, you've got feet. So these differences that we're seeing here, bipedalism particularly, is laid down pretty early. So how are these changes encoded in the genome? That's what we're interested in. Uh, quite some time ago now, 1975, uh, Mary Claire King and Alan Wilson first proposed this idea that maybe it wasn't all protein coding differences, that maybe it was differences in the way that genes are actually controlled that account for human-chimp physical differences. And if you think about it from a developmental perspective, this makes a lot of sense. Okay, so if you want to make an embryo, if you want to make a cortex, really what you need to do is to precisely control the way the genes are actually expressed in that structure. So the cortex, the limb, these are specified by very complex patterns of gene expression. So how does that work? Regulatory switches in the genome are really controlling the expression of genes. So if you want to express a gene, say, in the embryonic limb, the embryonic brain, there are sequences that actually direct expression. Okay, these are discrete sequences in the genome, um, termed enhancers. Um, they recruit transcription factors. They act on particular genes. And particular enhancers will drive expression in particular structures. Okay, so this, in this case, this enhancer is driving expression in the limb. You can have another enhancer for the same gene. It's located somewhere else, maybe further upstream from that gene. That's driving expression, in this case, in the developing midbrain. And by combinations of these different regulatory modules, you get a complete expression pattern and a developmental outcome. So we think that changes in the function of these enhancers may have altered development during human evolution. And the logic behind this is that if you, if you want to modify developmental processes, mutations in genes are really not the way to go. Because mutations in many developmental genes tend to be lethal. These genes are expressed in many places. They have a lot of jobs. If you knock out or modify the gene, it's gone everywhere or potentially altered everywhere. That's not a very tolerable situation. But changes in particular regulatory elements, particular enhancers, those could alter gene expression in the embryo, producing a different expression pattern that produces a different developmental outcome, maybe changing the morphology of the brain in this case. So our interest is in identifying enhancers that have human-specific functions during development. There are several challenges to doing this. Um, first is identifying enhancers is inherently, is inherently difficult in the genome. We don't have an enhancer code. That's analogous to the genetic code. Uh, identifying enhancers that are likely to have human-specific activity is also difficult. And we need to really have rigorous experimental methods for defining human-specific enhancer function in an embryonic context. So one thing that helps us, as Katie mentioned, is that enhancers tend to be conserved across species. So if you look at genome sequences from many different evolutionarily divergent species, these sorts of regulatory sequences tend to be maintained over evolutionary time. And there are statistical and quantitative measures of this sequence conservation that we can apply to actually pick out these sequences from the genome. So the system that we use to really test whether or not a particular conserved sequence has developmental enhancer activity is a mouse transgenic assay. So the basic components of this assay are taking a sequence out of the human genome, hooking it up to a bacterial gene that makes an enzyme 
which you can then stain blue, effectively, in the embryo, inject that DNA into a single-cell mouse egg, uh, a fertilized mouse embryo, put that back into a pseudo-pregnant foster mother, and then collect embryos and stain for the activity of this reporter. And the idea is that if your sequence can drive gene expression in particular places in the embryo at particular times, you can see that here. So this is driving expression in the cortex. Here's a sequence that does the same thing, another brain enhancer. So there's two things to keep in mind here um, that are often confused. What we're actually doing is we're testing the ability of a conserved human sequence to activate a reporter gene in a mouse embryo. Okay? These are not human embryos. Uh, the sequence enters the mouse genome in a random location, so we do many of these experiments in parallel. And if we see the same pattern over and over again, that suggests that this, the activity we're seeing is inherent to the sequence we put in. It's not an artifact of integration. So we wanted to, wanted to identify enhancers that have human-specific function. So the approach that we took um, back in 2006 was statistically similar to what Katie described, where we're looking at sequences that are highly conserved across many species, but have a lot of human-specific sequence changes in them. Um, so sequences are evolving rapidly. Now here we're looking specifically for sequences that could be enhancers, so we ignored anything that had any evidence of transcription. And we call these human accelerated conserved non-coding sequences, um, or HACNSs. Uh, we identified 992 of these sequences in the genome. This is their distribution across chromosomes. Um, they're on every chromosome that we could actually do an analysis for. Uh, and we found that they tended to be near genes that are involved in brain development, particularly brain wiring, forming neuronal connections. So the hypothesis there is that potentially some of these are going to be enhancers that have human-specific functions in the brain. So here's one example. This is HACNS1. Again, the 1 is as for HAR1, um, simply because it's at the top of our list. Uh, it's in a gene called AGAP1 on chromosome 2. It's downstream of another gene called GBX2. This is a developmental transcription factor involved in brain development, among other things. And this is the overall conservation profile between human and other species. There's a lot of blue here. All that really tells you is that it's very deeply conserved overall between human and many other species, except here, where there are all of these human-specific sequence changes. So if we look at that up close, We've got a short stretch of sequence here. It's 81 base pairs long. And you can see in red, each place we have human has a sequence difference relative to all of these other species that are identical to each other. Okay, so chimp all the way down to chicken. So this is very surprising to see. We wouldn't expect to see that by chance, certainly not in something that's this deeply conserved. So this is a direct target for our experimental study. So this is what we do. We're using the same assay system I described uh, to identify HACNSs that function as enhancers. So to do this, we actually have a little schematic map of the mouse embryo, and we've divided it up into quadrants and zones based on anatomical structures. And we use a single developmental stage to do these experiments. This is 11-day-old mouse embryos. And this allows us to score expression patterns in a very rigorous way. And the basic experimental design is to take the human sequence, test it, score it, compare that to chimp, compare that to a rhesus sequence. And the idea is that if chimp and rhesus are the same and human is different in the activity, you have a human-specific function. So many HACNSs are enhancers. Uh, these are some of the ones that we've found. And wherever you see blue is where the reporter gene is active. Okay, so this is the cortex. Uh, this is in the midbrain. Uh, this is the hindbrain. 
This is in the branchial arch. This will eventually become your jaw and your mouth. Uh, but I'm going to talk mostly about this guy. Okay, so this is HIC and S1. What you see here is expression particularly in the, in the embryonic limbs, um, in the anterior part of the limb. Uh, again, this is the branchial arch. This is the ear. This is the eye. So it's a very strong enhancer in all of these structures at this stage. So what we see when we compare the activity of the human sequence, okay, which is shown here, and I should say, each of these is an independent integration event into the mouse genome, each of these embryos. Okay, so that's one injection into a single cell mouse embryo. And you get the same pattern in each case. We compare that to chimpanzee, we see that the activity of the equivalent chimpanzee sequence is quite different. Uh, some aspects are the same, including some of the major domains, like the branchial arch. Uh, but what's most obviously different here is the limb. So there's an overall reduction in activity, but specifically in the limb bud. This very strong anterior expression we see in the limb is not present in CHIM or in rhesus. We compare it to rhesus as an outgroup. So the conclusion that we come to when we see something like this is that this is the ancestral state, at least in old world monkeys, and human is derived. Something else that I'll come back to in a little bit is if you look at the face for these guys, you see expression here in the medial nasal process for rhesus and for chimp, but for the human sequence, you don't see that. So there's also been a loss of function that goes along with this gain of function. And we published this back in 2008 in Science. So coming back to those sequence changes that we identified in the element, we did a pretty simple synthetic assay simply taking the chimpanzee sequence and humanizing it at these positions, doing the same experimental test on that humanized chimpanzee sequence. And what we found was that by putting these 13 changes back in the chimp, we get the human activity. If we take the human sequence and revert it back to chimp, or the ancestral state as inferred by chimpanzee, uh, we get what looks like the ancestral function. So these sequence changes, which we identified purely statistically, Okay, not based on any kind of experiment at the beginning, these are directly responsible for this functional shift in the activity of this regulatory element. So what was really interesting to us when we looked a bit closer at what this enhancer is doing, now looking at 13-day-old mouse embryos, so two days later in mouse development, what we see is that the human sequence is driving expression specifically in digit one in the forelimb and the hindlimb. So these are digital rays. These are the digits that are forming in the mouse. This is our enhancer activity. So the forelimb, obviously digit one turns into the thumb. The hindlimb, digit one turns into the toe, the great toe. But from a, getting to the point where you want to develop a hypothesis as to what these sorts of shifts in regulatory function might be doing, this is the system that we're looking at. So looking at the loss of craniofacial expression uh, between human and chimp, where we see that Chimp has his expression in the medial nasal process, and human has lost it. Well, one interesting aspect of human evolution has been changes in the shape of the face. So, of course, chimps have this projection in craniofacial structure. We don't have that. Our faces are flat. So potentially loss here could also be accounting for something like this. So that's HAC and S1. Uh, we're looking at other HAC and Ss, and I can't really get into this in too much detail here, but another HAC and S enhancer shows human-specific loss of function in the embryonic cortex. So this is the human sequence driving expression in the developing mouse cortex. We see expression here 
and the medial part of the cortex. This is what the chimpanzee sequence does. Okay, this is the equivalent orthologous sequence of chimpanzee. And what we see in chimp is this expansion of this domain in different areas of the developing cortex and also overall increase in the strength of the enhancer. So a hypothesis we're developing around this is that this may have something to do either with an increase in brain size in human in that reducing, somewhat paradoxical to think of it this way, but reducing the activity of an enhancer that, for instance, regulates a gene that promotes exit from the, stem, from the cell cycle uh, in the brain may actually account for a change in, cell, in brain size, but also differences in different regions of the brain uh, between human and chimp. So as I said, I can't really get into that in too much detail, but this is something we're actively pursuing. So these are all hypotheses. We don't really know what these functional shifts are actually doing in the context of human evolution or biology. But the way we really want to approach that is as we would approach studying any other human, um, particularly human sequence we're interested in from a genetic standpoint, which is we use the mouse. So all of these experiments I'm showing you, okay, keep in mind that this is simply taking a human sequence putting it somewhere in the mouse genome and seeing if it can activate gene expression of this reporter. Okay? That's not how you can model the biology that this reads out a molecular function. What we want to do, and what we are doing, is actually take the equivalent mouse sequence and replace it with the human sequence. And because we're looking at sequences that are deeply conserved across species, this is a relatively straightforward experiment to do. Since we know exactly what the mouse sequence looks like, we know where we should actually target our sequence. And we have a hypothesis that in the ancestral state, the mouse will be a, a good model for whatever the ancestral state of the, of the enhancer is. And by placing this human sequence in there, we create a humanized mouse. So if this particular, being very reductionist now in our approach, if this particular human-specific regulatory change actually has some impact on uh, morphology and particularly human-specific aspects of development, we'll be able to model that in the mouse. Okay, so I just want to sum up uh, by giving you kind of an overview of, of our lot, the way we approach this problem, and I think the way that being able to compare genomes and do the sort of statistical analyses that Katie described um, can be leveraged to really get functional insights into what makes humans distinct from other species at the molecular level. So we start with maps of human-specific sequence change, which we now have. And what's critical is to translate these sorts of maps into functional insights. So in our case, looking at human-specific enhancer functions, looking for enhancers that have human-specific developmental activities. And then translate that in an experimental system to really understand if any of these particular changes in the genome, any of these discrete kind of low-level molecular changes um, result in human-specific changes in development. And the best way, really the, the classic way to do that is to use the mouse and ask, can we humanize mouse development using these sequences? So with that, I'd just like to acknowledge people that have done the work. Um, my lab has grown in the few years I've been at Yale. Uh, most of the mouse work is done by Heather Aronofi and Sham Schultes. Um, our transgenics are made um, in collaboration with our animal genomic service at Yale, Carol Peace and Tim Natoli. We're working on our, the brain enhancer I described, 
um, with Pascal Rakic in neurobiology. And the initial statistical analyses, I described the definition of an HACNS, was something that arose from a collaboration between myself and Shyam Prabhakar, who's now at the Genome Institute of Singapore. And these are our funding sources. Thanks. I'm pleased to announce my co-chair, Dr. Ajit Varki, who's the uh, CARTA co-director and is a faculty member at UCSD, uh, to talk about human-specific changes in SIGLEC genes. Thank you, Elaine. So I'd like to give you an overview of some work we've been doing in the last couple of decades, which has culminated in looking at one specific area of uh, biology in relation to genes, and this is human-specific changes in SIGLEC genes. But in order to put this in perspective, I'm going to really give you a rather broad overview of the system I'm studying, and then really not going to give you a lot of details. In some slides, I'll have some, some details, which are for the aficionados, but if you just look at the titles of each slide, they basically summarize what the slide shows. So all cells in nature are covered with a dense coating of sugar chains or glycans. This would be an electron micrograph of a human lymphocyte, and you can see that this thick layer of sugar chains is coating all cell surfaces. This is true of every cell in your body. Now, if we were to zoom in there, we now know the structure of a lot of these different types of sugar chains, and what we find is that sialic acids decorate most cell surface and secreted molecules of all vertebrate cells sitting out on the tips here. So what do sialic acids do? They've been around in the, since the deuterostome lineage of animals emerged in the Cambrian expansion, and they have many biological roles ranging from neuroplasticity to glomerular filtration to a variety of other physical roles. Given their location, they're also the obvious target for every pathogen that approaches us. So influenza, malaria, cholera, et cetera, the list would go off the screen if I completed it. If that were the sole purpose of sialic acids, you would not have kept them for 500 million years. And if you take out sialic acids in a mouse, you have an early embryonic lethal. And this may be because we and others have found a variety of receptors required to re recognize sialic acid that are intrinsic to the system. The situation gets complicated because a wide variety of very successful pathogens come in coated with sialic acid, sort of a Klingon coating device to look like us, and are very successful in invading us. So if you look across the bottom of the screen, you can imagine 500 million years of an evolutionary arms race. If you have sialic acids, you're probably going to die. If you don't have sialic acids, you are going to die. So uh, sialic acids, therefore, have been rapidly evolving. And we have uh, got recent data suggesting that in this system, of course, this is recognition of non-self. The pathogens are recognizing us, so we are recognizing the pathogens. But that the sialic acids are also involved in intrinsic recognition of self. So if this were a cell, and these were all the different parts of the cell, the nucleus, the Golgi, the lysosome, and here's an adjacent cell, and here's the plasma membrane of the cell, Say so how many genes are involved in all of mammalian sialic acid biology? We went through this after the chimpanzee genome and came up with a picture like this, very complicated, lots of different genes. These are all gene names doing different things. But I can simplify all of this by saying that there's six genes involved in producing sialic acids. There are two genes involved in the activation and transport, 20 to transfer them onto things, five to modify them further, 25 to recognize them, and six to turn over and recycle them. So really, less than 70 genes are involved in sialic acid biology. 
And what has happened over the years is we have discovered multiple human-specific changes involving sialic acid biology. These range from every kind of gene modification you've heard about today. Gene inactivations, gene deletions, functional changes, expression changes, presence of null alleles, and so on. And so this is our published list to date, about 12 genes, and actually the total list now is about 15. So the obvious question you may ask, are we like the drunk searching for his keys under the lamppost? Why is he looking in the lamppost? Because that's where the light is. Actually, his keys are lying somewhere over here. So uh, we are always concerned about this, and to the extent possible, we have been looking at these, the same family of genes in, or related genes in these other taxa. And I can tell you so far that while the system is rapidly evolving in many, many taxa, we've only found a limited number of genetic changes here. So we like to think that sialic acid-related genes are a hot spot in human evolution, one of the many places where there's been a lot of dramatic changes. So this story really began because we were many years ago looking at two major kinds of sialic acid and mammalian cells and the fact that one was missing in humans. And don't worry about the structure. One is called AC, the other is called GC, and they differ by a single oxygen atom. And basically we found what at that time was the first known genetic difference between humans and apes, that humans were missing this, mutation, uh, this gene, the CMA gene, and therefore could not convert AC to GC. So we were sort of like a knockout mouse with a single gene deleted. So recently we've been trying to put together a sort of an evolutionary synthesis, if you will, of all these different findings, and re reproducing or reconstructing evolution is very difficult, in fact, practically impossible. So all you can do is make up a, a reasonable hypothesis for what might be going on. And if you imagine a common ancestor with a chimpanzee in which there was both AC and GC, uh, we went, underwent some selection. We think it was a form of malaria and uh, ended up with an excess of AC and no GC. And perhaps also in relation to influenza, we're not really sure, we also changed another gene called ST6GAL1. The bottom line is we have very different pathogen regimes related to these types of situations. So now I want to come back to uh, the other aspect, which is SIGLEX, which is the main theme here. So these are the molecules that are proteins that are recognizing sialic acid either on the same cell surface or adjacent cell surfaces. So here is a, genetic, a generic SIGLEC, a typical SIGLEC molecule. Here's the outside of the cell, the inside, here's the cell membrane, extracellular Ig-like domains, intracellular signaling motifs, and here's where you recognize sialic acids. So these are found on many cell types, but often cells of bone marrow origin. As you probably know, the stem cell in the bone marrow emerges, uh, uh, develops into a variety of other cell types, which eventually develop into various cell types that end up in your blood, and then eventually some differentiate and end up in various tissues, including the brain and the, tissue, uh, and the immune system and so on. If you look at the distribution of these SIGLEX among these uh, cell types, this is a partially uh, worked out system right now, we know that the SIGLEX are expressed in various different places, and everywhere in red are human-specific changes from the great apes. So here's a closer look at the SIGLEX. There's some conserved ones, four of them that are present from uh, in all, or, or at least all mammals, which I won't go into as much. We're focused on the subset called CD33-related SIGLEX, which are rapidly evolving in all taxa, particularly in humans. And so we and others have been able to clone most of these, and we think we found almost the last one in the genome. And what we found is that the inhibitory CD33-related SIGLEX are involved in recognition of self by innate immune cells. So in other words, here's a SIGLEX which has an inhibitory motif. Don't worry about the details in the cytosolic tail. And what happens is 
this is an immune cell. It sees sialic acid. It says, well, that's self. That's me. So it sends a negative signal and makes sure that the cell doesn't get too excited. So now, looking through these SIGLEX, we have now found human-specific changes in all of these SIGLEX. When I mean human-specific, I mean that humans are specifically different from chimpanzees who are similar to gorillas, orangutans, and so on. And so it seems unlikely that lightning would strike so many places in the same place, so we've decided to pursue this further. So trying to put this together, we have come across one finding a few years ago that many of our inhibitory SIGLEX in the chimpanzee, common, or the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees and gorillas, recognize the GC sialic acid. So when we lost GC by whatever selection might have occurred, we would have ended up with a funny state where we couldn't recognize ourselves. Our immune cells could not recognize ourselves. This would not have been a good situation, probably something we were forced into. Be that as it may, if we now look at uh, the SIGLEX of humans and look at this amino terminal VSET domain that recognizes sialic acid, it's undergone rapid evolution and now binds AC. So we have gone through, we believe, a transition here, and we may be still in the middle of it. So now the further complication comes with these molecular mimicry events, these pathogens that coat themselves with sialic acid. And many pathogens express surface sialic acid, but only NU5AC, not NU5GC. So in other words, we throw away the one thing that distinguished us from all the bacteria. And, but many, many pathogens can reinvent NU5AC by multiple pathways that I won't go into. It's very easy for them to do. And they've done it by every way you can think of. Don't worry about the details here. Any trick you can think of to cover yourself with NU5AC, some pathogen has done it. So this must be a very powerful convergent evolution process. And interestingly, many of these are obligate human pathogens or commensals. These, these are bugs that infect only, only humans and not even chimpanzees. So what might be going on there? Well, working with Victor Nizay and some of our colleagues, uh, we go from thinking of this system of having a homeostasis where the sialic acid being recognized and shutting off genes well, if you're a pathogen, that's really nice. You come in expressing sialic acid with your Klingon cloaking device and look like, look like uh, uh, the human. And in fact, that's what happens. We find that a sialic acid expressing pathogen can shut off the immune response against the kind of things that uh, you have Gilad mentioned against TLRs and so on. So we can block that. So we believe the next stage that, that happened was these new five expressing pathogens emerged, converged on humans, and hijacked our SIGLEX and de developed new pathogen regimes that are specific to humans. And various other changes occurred in the, in the lymphoid system, in uh, epithelium, in the brain, so on. I'm not going to go into the details that we think are connected to these events. So now, what are you going to do if you're under attack by these Klingons with their cloaking devices? Well, you've got to retreat. And so what seems to have happened is humans have inhibited and downregulated these inhibitory SIGLEX. So here's a figure from some years ago where here's a human blood cells uh, collected from, during, uh, from volunteers where there's not much uh, SIGLEX on the T lymphocytes, whereas chimpanzees have a lot of these, as do gorillas and, and bonobos. And so John Cohen, writing about our work here, suggested maybe human T cells have lost their breaks, and we had some evidence for this. And more recently, Paula Soto and Lance Stein have shown that in, that confirm that human lymphocytes show much greater proliferative response than chimpanzees to multiple different stimuli. 
And so far, our only explanation so far has been reduced inhibitory SIGLEX, and we're working further on that. Be that as it may, we seem to have a trigger-happy immune system. And here I'm showing that from Nancy Hatada Ziola that bonobos and gorillas are similar to chimpanzees in having a lot more SIGLEX. This is a, a method called flow cytometry. Okay, so now what you're going to do, these bugs are taking advantage of you. Well, uh, we always have a comeback, right? And it turns out that some, some SIGLEX we more recently discovered do the opposite. They see the same thing but give the opposite response. So you're going to come and fool me this way, I'm going to fight back with an activatory SIGLEX. And here we have these activatory SIGLEX. Again, don't worry about the details. This is a negative signal, this is a positive signal, basically. And so it turns out that what's happening is there are two cases we found where SIGLEX 5 and 14 and SIGLEX 11 and 16, where the business end of these molecules that recognize the sialic acid is kept the same by a process called, called gene conversion, in this case, concerted evolution. So these sequences are constantly pasting themselves on top of each other. These genes are next to each other. I'm showing you here the proteins. So that the, fr the front end stays the same and the back end is completely different. And these are found on the right types of cells. And 11 and 16 are particularly interesting because they're only found in the human brain, in the microglia, not in a chimpanzee brain. So what we think happened is the inhibitory SIGLEX were downregulated, the activatory SIGLEX were upregulated in response to this process. And, but eventually, too much of a good thing uh, is not good uh, in terms of activation. And as you probably know, too much of an activation is going to get you in trouble too. So now it turns out that several events have occurred in which humans have lost several of these SIGLEX. So in fact, humans have deleted or partially deleted, in some cases completely in humans, some cases some of you have them, some of you don't, and we have some relationship to diseases. And we think we're still in the middle of some sort of balancing selection uh, for all these different genes, especially the ones that have changed more recently. And they range in expression patterns, not only in the uh, immune system, but in the brain, the placenta, the ovary, and all sorts of interesting places where humans have unique changes. I don't have time to go into each of these genes. But finally, I, I want to say that uh, this may relate to the fact that, as already mentioned, these apparent differences between humans and great apes in the incidence and severity of biomedical conditions. I'm not talking about diseases caused by the fact that we stand up straight. That's anatomical differences. If you're actually interested, this review just came out. We collaborated with some primate centers and updated all of these things. And you probably can't read this there, so I'll just tell you that this ranges from things like coronary thrombosis, the commonest cause of death in Western civilization, uh, there's only been one great ape who's ever died of anything like that. Falciparum malaria, the big killer of humans, uh, does not really infect apes. All of the bacterial sexually transmitted diseases that, that are common in humans don't occur in apes. They get completely different diseases that I won't go into. And probable differences include hepatitis complications, Alzheimer's pathology, carcinomas mentioned earlier, a disease called preeclampsia that uh, is a plague for, for uh, pregnancy. And then there are some possible differences, and these are anecdotal, but the fact is uh, I've never met a veterinarian who's met or uh, seen a great ape who's had bronchial asthma or rheumatoid arthritis. And that's quite striking given uh, the frequency of these diseases. And already mentioned is our tendency to have early, early fetal loss, which also seems to be very rare in these apes. So for what it's worth, uh, not that I'm claiming that we have found the answer to any of these, we do have a lot of hypotheses related to SIGLEX and sialic acids that we can ask questions here. 
So we do have a lot of testable hypotheses. And uh, so I, in this talk, uh, is given that this is a purpose of the broad overview, I'm not talking about the specific genes. And, uh, but in many cases, we have clues that we're following up, as I said, in many tissues where unusual changes have happened in humans, including the placenta, the brain, the ovary, uh, the epithelial surfaces, and so on and so forth. So I'll leave you with the, my suggestion that sialic acid-related genes are a hot spot in human evolution. I'll tell you that we have three more genes. I'm not yet ready to talk about them that have shown human-specific changes. So it appears that the mutational load in this uh, area is uh, quite substantial. But of course, we have to keep searching here to make sure that many of these changes we find are uniquely human. But I think we've stumbled upon a system that may have been part of, uh, of uh, if, if nothing else, the scars of our evolution. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.